Well, I don't know about you, but when I am setting out on a journey on foot, I want to know where I'm going in advance. I kind of wonder how Silas and Timothy were feeling around mile 300 when it still seemed unclear where their missionary journey with Paul was actually going. The year was probably between late 49 and 51. Paul and Silas had begun the journey in Antioch and had journeyed about five days where they were now joined with Timothy. And then they were continuing on westward toward the Aegean Sea. And we assume that Paul had set out on this journey, this was his second journey, uh, intending to plant new churches in Anatolia because he had already planted them in Galatia. But the plan doesn't seem to be bearing fruit because several times when they approached a place where they might begin preaching, Luke tells us the Holy Spirit forbid them to speak the word in the province of Asia, which of course is not our continental Asia, but a part of Turkey. And then once again, they try to go north into Bithynia, which once again, they hear the voice of Jesus who does not allow them to do so. So they know where they're not going, but they still don't know where they were going. And onward, they still walked. This is St. Paul, you know, a planning, very effective missionary. This is not your recently graduated senior from high school who's like, yeah, I don't know what I'm doing this summer. No, this is somebody who is an effective person, an experienced person. It's astounding because it implies that Paul and Silas and Timothy were willing to not do yet what they had set out to do because they prioritized the prompting of the Holy Spirit in that moment. They trusted the Holy Spirit more even than their own plans. Didn't mean they were stopped, but they were getting hemmed in by the Holy Spirit. There's no real reference to how the Holy Spirit is communicating to them in this moment. Uh, we just read in the text that there's this restraining communication that they were convinced that the Holy Spirit had forbidden them to preach. And it's worth reflecting on whether we would expect or recognize such a prompting or be willing to acknowledge it and, of course, obey it, especially since there was really no practical evidence as to why they were being restrained. There's no explanation as to why they weren't supposed to do it. There certainly wasn't an ethical commode, and I mean, it wasn't wrong. Uh, there was something else uh, at stake. And so for them, it was really just a matter of prioritizing listening for the Holy Spirit, which of course had been promised. In that gospel reading from John, we heard Jesus say, it's good I'm going to the Father because he is going to send you the Holy Spirit, the advocate, who can be with all of you everywhere. I'm a human right now. I can't be with everybody everywhere. The Holy Spirit 
can be instructing all of you. It's good that I'm going, and expect that. And even in retrospect, we don't know why the Holy Spirit restrained them. Possibly, you know, it was too dangerous in those places, or possibly Paul was just not the messenger that God intended for those particular places, or perhaps there was an urgency for him to end up somewhere else instead. Possibly the prayers from a God-fearer in Macedonia named Lydia, who was praying to God, I want to know more about you, God. And maybe Paul was responding to this prayer that was drawing him ultimately into Europe. We don't know. We won't know until uh, heaven. But there they go, they continue walking, and finally, when they walk all the way to the end of the continent of Asia, and we're in the coastal town of Troas, Paul has a vision in the night. A man from Macedonia was standing there pleading, come to Macedonia and help us. Presumably, Paul recognized the man to be from Macedonia because of his way of speaking or the way he was dressed. Tradition identifies this figure as an angel. The text doesn't tell us. But immediately, Paul makes plans to set sail from Troas across the Aegean to Philippi. And what a great delight that must have been to be confirmed, you know, in this sense of what the plan had been from God and to have clarity and an invitation from the Lord and a destination. And there's one other delightful detail in this part of the text. The narrator of Acts, of course, is Luke, and he includes himself in the action of this particular scenario by saying, we. Before that, it's always she and him and her and everything third person, but now uh, we know that Luke himself had joined the group, presumably in Troas. We have Paul make reference to Luke in other places where he acknowledges Luke the physician, you know, and here he is joining in that group at this point. We know from the letters of Paul and from earlier chapters in Acts that Paul's typical strategy for church planting was to find the local synagogue and to preach there, conveying the message that the Messiah that the Old Testament had predicted was in fact Jesus, and he had actually come. And that all along, the scriptures had also foretold that the Messiah would suffer. That was the part that was so hard for the Jewish people to accept, that the Messiah would suffer. But Paul, biblical scholar, pointing back into Isaiah, the suffering servant, saying, this is the Messiah. This is what our scriptures have said all along. It was not a change in plan that the Messiah was crucified. All along, the scriptures had also foretold that he would suffer out of love, as Jesus did, for the sins of the world to restore right relationship, and that by his crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus is now Lord of all. That was the message that Paul was preaching in the synagogues. Now in Philippi, in Europe, which is a Roman colony, there was not a large Jewish community, so there was no synagogue. So after a few days of 
checking things out, Paul and Timothy and Silas and Luke find a place by a river where folks, apparently, mostly women, the text says, used to gather to pray. And one of them, Lydia, is referred to as a God-fearer, and that's a particular term in the Bible. And it refers to a person who is Gentile by birth, has not actually become Jewish, but is drawn to prayer of the Jews, to the God of the Jews, to the devotion and the ethical life of Jews, uh, as opposed to Gentile faith. Uh, Because, you know, remember, those Gentile gods The gods of Greece and Rome were kind of a moody, fickle bunch, basically uh, regarding humankind as sort of ridiculous entertainment while they are up there on Mount Olympus, you know, sipping their ambrosia. You know, they just sort of regard us as ridiculous creatures. You know, not your go-to godly person uh, if you want mercy and, and love. So she, Lydia's drawn to this God of the Jews. And Paul and his group show up at the river and start talking about the one true God of the Jews and reveal the good news that not only did that God save the Jews from captivity in Egypt, but he came in the person of Jesus Christ to give his life to redeem all, to include the Gentile peoples, that, this, that the real enemy wasn't the Egyptians. The real enemy of humankind was sin, which leads to death. And that is what Jesus came to set us free from. Now, I'm just going to do a little discursus. It won't be too long because I know we all have to get out to that picnic on time so that those table people don't eat all the food first. But I do want to say, you know, sin is a heavy word, and I always think about it in terms of baptism and these little innocent babies and that we're praying that we baptize them and that we, they would be saved from sin. And, you know, my, my father, we were having a discussion, he said, sin, I just wish we didn't have to use that word. It just doesn't seem to apply to these little innocent babies, you know. And so I'm, I'm challenging you to come up with a term that's better than sin, you know, to explain what Jesus is saving us from. But I'm thinking of it this way. I have a genetic problem, which is if I was to continue to exist into eternity exactly the way I am today, my dear husband, who loves me very much, might say, maybe I don't need to live eternally. You know, eternity is a really long time to go on being the kind of human beings that we are. We need to be saved from that. So I challenge you to think of another word for sin, but, but that's what Jesus is saving us from, which was eternity as we are, which would kind of be hell. So when Paul delivers this message to Lydia, this wealthy businesswoman, kind of interesting, she's from Theatira, where they had figured out how to get purple dye out of plants instead of out of shells. So that was much less expensive. So she's this sort of entrepreneur business person. Uh, Luke tells us that the Lord opened her heart to listen eagerly. And she and her whole household are baptized. 
And from that flows an invitation to Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy to stay with her, which is so beautiful, of course. It's, uh, we, we read in our gospel that, uh, that the advocate comes and so the father and the son can live with us, be with us, dwell with us. And Lydia's response is that same kind of hospitality of bringing in these people who have given her this word. So four things. This, this text is so rich with many things, but I'm going to pay attention to four. First, the legitimacy of listening ongoingly to God, expecting to hear his voice somehow communicated to you, you know, could be in a dream, could be a friend tells you, God has different ways, both to say, no, don't do that. Get out of there. And to tell us, yes, do do that. Do do that. Yes, go there. We expect that ongoing voice from the Holy Spirit. Second, the legitimacy of dreams in the Christian life. You know, Paul's dream of the Macedonian messenger. Uh, you know, Freud isn't the only person who gets to say dreams are important. As Christians, we believe dreams are important. In fact, just yesterday, Reggie uh, came from Maryland, a retired police officer, to run a, a sports camp here for Jones Pidia School. We had a number of people volunteering. It was a wonderful day. But Reggie um, shared with us that the whole reason he does these sports camps is because after a very difficult life in law enforcement and, and even suicidal thoughts, in 2019, he had a dream that he would be playing baseball all over the world with children. It was at 1.45 in the morning, he got out of bed and he wrote it. And within four weeks, there was a foundation that made that possible, that dream. And I'm, I'm here to tell you, there is good fruit coming from Reggie paying attention to his dream. So the legitimacy of dreams in the Christian life. Three, the power of the simplest message of the gospel which is that Jesus died for our sins. We are forgiven if we receive him and we have eternal life with him. You know, as Christians, we can think, oh, that's just so old news. Everybody knows that. You know, am I going to be irritated if I say that? But there are people like Lydia praying, tell me, I need to know that news. And you know it. The power of the news of the gospel. And finally, four. That lovely description of God opening the heart of Lydia. That is something we need to pray into for ourselves, for our families, for our friends, for Nashville. We can't open people's hearts. I can't open anybody's heart. God opens people's hearts. And I think it's his desire that we would want that enough to pray with him, God, open people's hearts, that we would claim God's dream as ours. And what is that dream? That we receive the fullness of his redemptive love by believing in his son, Jesus Christ. Amen.